This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer Megan Valley. Her pronouns are she, her. She is a queer author of three full-length poetry collections, most recently Drive Here and Devastate Me. Valley co-wrote How Poetry Can Change Your Life with poet Andrea Gibson as part of the Chronicle Books acclaimed how-to series. Her chapbook, Bad Girls Honey, won the 2015 Tired Hearts Prize. A woman of the world and National Poetry Slam finalist, as well as a Pushcart Prize nominee, she is an essayist and writer of creative nonfiction and is working on a memoir. Her work recently won her first place at the Tom Howard John H. Reed Fiction and Essay Contest in 2021 for a whopper of a personal essay we'll discuss. Welcome, Megan. Hi. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have you here. We were chatting before we started, and it's just, it really is, I want to say on the record, what a joy it is to welcome you. I, I first experienced your writing because it was given to me by my child, and I watched you in a spoken word performance, and live and online, and um, I had I knew the phrase spoken word poetry, but it might be a term that's foreign to some people. So it's live performance, and in my experience, it seems to distinguish itself in its dedication to themes of social justice, identity, race. So how would you describe it? And tell us a little bit about your history with this wonderful form. I've had uh, so much fun and creativity describing it over the years when people ask what I do and have no idea. <laughs> and I, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. I think at the, the base level, what I would call it is performance poetry. It's often memorized. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you would do a golf clap for or not many pearl wearing people in the audience, not your grandmother's poetry, perhaps. I've also called mm -hmm. it like rap, but not as cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like it. Mostly memorized. I've never seen it done with anything but without notes. And so for me, it feels like a piece of performance memoir. And well, what does it do to the work, knowing that it's going to be a performance piece as you're writing that piece? So this is sort of interesting. When I was uh, a sophomore in high school, we had this assignment to write a letter to ourselves, and it would be mailed to us 10 years in the future. And I actually, you know, I received this a few years ago. And in the letter, I begged my future self to not become a writer because it was like, you might even be a writer right now. I hope not. And oh. the reason was because I, you know, I was told that I was good at writing and pushed in that direction, but I loved performing. I loved to be on stage, to dance, to sing, to act. I didn't have much 
gifts in any of those places, except for what my mom would call a Sarah heartburn and then correct herself, Sarah Bernhardt quality (laughs) of loving to belt things out. (laughs) But in my freshman year of college, I discovered spoken word, which was this perfect marriage of what I was good at writing and then what I just love to do, spoken word. And So I would say it's just so natural to me, even as I'm working in prose, when I often edit it by reading it out loud, I just, I always envision it read to someone or performed in some way. Hmm, fascinating. And your topics astonish me. These days, we talk a lot about the gays, the female gays, the male gays, and their offenses and their differences. But for better or worse, we're, we're no longer supposed to speak about one another in terms of how we look. It's not that we don't, of course. It's just that we're asking, I hope, for some progress and not dehumanizing one another via the mere physical. And you kind of reverse engineered this whole thing and make us look at you. You write about your red lipstick. You write about how you look. And it forces us to look hard at our own gaze. So how in the world did you make this decision in this tricky and cautionary time that we live in? I love that you're calling it a decision. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I feel like my earliest wound that kind of defined a trajectory of my life was being looked at and being criticized. And it almost feels like my origin story in a way, just where everything spouted from. And Mm -hmm. I think that the unhealed wound in us will always intersect with the decisions we make, who we're with, what we wear, what jobs we take, whatever that might be. And I do think even my love for performance has been a demand to be seen and mm. and to be loved. And so, yeah, I think that my awareness has just been so attuned to how am I being perceived from a young age that mm-hmm. it just, I just think that all came about naturally, especially as I write now from a young narrator and that was how I saw the world. It, it wouldn't be honest really to write it in any other way. Oh, that's so deeply honest. The unhealed wound. Yes, I agree with you. So that unhealed wound is where you go when you write this, I just think, perfect nonfiction piece that won you this recent award. And congratulations again. That's what I said to you first when I reached out to ask you to come on here. The essay is called The Act of Vanishing, and I'll put a link in the transcript I run on my website because I want everyone to read it. And it's as good a piece of nonfiction as I know. It's, it's really a remarkable essay. So I want you to help me pull it apart a little bit. The thing that I think, having read it now a bunch of times and studied it, is how you dole out details only when we need them. You're a writing teacher. I'm a writing teacher. You can tell people to your blue in the face, do not load the reader up with details in the opener. But they do all the time. But you don't. And so help me teach this to the people who are listening. We find out early that we are at fat camp, a phrase that's galling enough. And you let us have a few sentences to metabolize it, literally. 
But if I had to choose, as a teacher, only three details that sear themselves into our psyches, there are three phrases I would choose from the piece as we work through it. So I thought maybe we could just kind of teach this essay together. How about that? Why don't we try this? So uh, these phrases are well spaced out in the piece. The first one that is the mile marker or the, the, the thing the reader has to round for me is the phrase 87 pounds. Can you contextualize that a little bit and, and why you put that where it is? And as people read it, they can, they can kind of see why we're doing this exercise. Sure. I think that I established we're at fat camp first, and that's sort of the setting, and you're thrown in there. And then the 87 pounds comes in a bit later to talk about my fat camp best friend who's you know, age 11 and 87 pounds, and, mm. and she's small. And so I think that we have this image of what Fat Camp would look like and who would be there that mm -hmm. I hope to subvert because, you know, any place like that is really just looking to capitalize on our hatred of our bodies. And a lot of my friends were, you know, tiny girls with eating disorders. And mm -hmm. at, at the end of my years, I went there for five years. And at the end, I would count myself amongst them. So yeah, I, mm. I think one of the most important elements in writing that keeps people reading is surprise. So that might be why yes. I hold cards to my chest as, as long as I can. Yes, you sure do. And I teach that all the time. I say to people, pretend you've got a deck of cards in your hands and lay them out one at a time, giving us the time to take in the action of your very wrist as it comes down and the card when it's there on the table. And that's why I'm asking you to do this because this is a deck of cards and it is laid out with such wisdom. The second one that, that I would choose is you have this line when you're explaining about parental visiting and there's two different days and you say, in this phrase, you act as tour guide for whoever won less of you in the custody battle. So tell us about introducing the idea of divorced parents and how you decided to use this language. I often look for words that hold a big meaning or a big stigma, and we sort of place them into narrative, asking the reader to just assume they know the weight of it. So mm -hmm. divorce would be a great one. Uh, trauma, I think, is a often used one. Assault or abuse or anything like that. Cancer, even. And I try to pick apart those words into images most often or ideas to really have the re-experience of it, to not have the word go on autopilot for the reader. Uh, and that was sort of my experience. Um, I felt, you know, my mom won more of me. I lived with her mm -hmm. and I saw my mm -hmm. father once a week. Oh, to not have the word go on autopilot for the reader is something maybe we should like, I don't know, get crocheted onto something. Get <laughs> get uh, the, the woman who does badass cross stitch. I don't know if you know her, but I follow her on Twitter, on, uh, on Instagram. I love her. That's one for her. Yeah, that's a great, great piece of instruction. And, and the last phrase that I found as the sort of if we're, if we're skimming a stone across the top of this remarkable piece to teach, you foreshadowed for us a minute ago, but this one is when you say, I'm not even 12. You wait a while to tell us this. And um, 
in that it knocked my head back like the first time I took a drag on a cigarette and um, really knocked my head back. And even though we know your friend is 11, when you say I'm not even 12, it, it was the end of something for me. So why did you play that card when you did? When I look back at that time, and I have a friend who's, whose daughter just turned 12 and I spent some time with her and it breaks my heart to be around her because I feel my 11, 12-year-old self so present. Like I, since writing about mm. her, I feel her as like a tangible capacity walking around in my life. And hmm. that to me is a heartbreaking detail. And mm -hmm. things are more heartbreaking doled out slow because, how do I say this? You are messing with the expectation. I think that's what it is. So the delivery of yep. 87 pounds messes with your expectation. And then the age, I think, would mess with your expectation as well. And there were girls yes, as young as six at that camp, which is, you oh. know, a detail I reveal in other chapters as well. Yeah. It's worth noting that this essay ends with the word safe. So let's talk about safe. In one of your more remarkable poems, and they're all pretty remarkable, but one of my favorites, if, I'm, if I can have a favorite, your poem coming out and being pushed back in, you say, when you pass for straight, you feel like you failed something else. What keeps you invisible it often keeps you safe. So let's talk about safe. As writers, do we have to wait until we feel safe, like until we know everything on some topic? Or are we writing to a place of establishing some kind of safe assurance on how we feel? I love that you linked those two pieces of writing together because I, I wouldn't have, and that's that's so interesting to me. I I would not be writing right now what I've been writing for the last couple of years if I felt like I needed to be totally healed from it or have my head wrapped around it completely because I absolutely don't. I have mm -hmm. more of the awareness now to know that I don't have it all figured out, and <laughs> but I definitely don't have it all figured out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I as a writer, I more often do mine the past for material mm -hmm. rather than, you know, really write what's present and up for me. I sort of need that space and distance to have any kind of wisdom around it, but I definitely don't feel like safer in the clear from the things I struggled with when I was 12 or younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I suspect as a writing teacher, you've, you've had this question as many times as I've had this question is, you know, do we have to wait till we have it all figured out to write it? And I would say, please go read the work of Megan Fally and learn that you write. You write amid it. You write when you're up to your neck in it. You, you write about it and you come someplace. So is that what you think, is that what you think these days? Yes. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, yes, I do. I, the process of writing for me is, is such a process of uh, figuring out and understanding myself. And it's been that since I was a kid. My mom will talk about this, but if I had a hard day at school or something, I'd come home, she could tell, she'd ask if I wanted to talk about it, and I would tell her I was going to write about it, uh, first at least. Uh, and Yeah. 
there's something about my communication that has always been more clear to me through the written word than anything else. Hmm. Yeah, you referenced childhood, and it makes me wonder about training. You write like you've been training since you were five, so you kind of just answered that question like you took notes. But of course, we don't take notes when we're five, but you have this exquisite eye. So let's talk about what we're doing when we look at the past. How do you disable the eye of now and screw back in the eye of then, for instance? I'm specifically thinking about uh, a particular poem of yours, Going to the Basement, and how you re-inhabit this child whose mother needs some kind of comforting in the basement. You state in this, even though you're five years old, I was fluent, I was woman. And you have this line where you acknowledge that she is asking you into the basement to, quote, come down here and sweep up the mess of me. So, wow, what in the world did you do to go back to that I to write that line? Hmm. I don't know that I had left the I of that Mm. time. Hmm. A lot of my work has often been something that maybe has come up in therapy or something because I have that same Mm -hmm. quality of my mother of, and that I've been working on, but it's like, I'm in an argument or I want attention. So I shut down and whether that's physically going into a basement or just metaphorically. And I, I watched her and and so it's like I'm waiting for somebody to come to me. And I, I still do that, or I've, I've historically done that and, and really had to work hard to not anymore. And so mm-hmm. I think that I, I could understand what my mother was asking of me at that age because I now understand myself in that way. Hmm. That's a lovely answer and fascinating because I now understand myself in that way. I want to stick with your your eye for a minute and go in a wild case of whiplash to um, (laughs) you looking at something else (laughs) because we're going to keep the gaze in mind. But there's a a nonfiction piece of yours that just, I actually snorted reading it. It's the Long Island medium. And you open the piece with these words. I'm going to quote you. Teresa Caputo is exactly like every other woman on Long Island. Her body is made up of hairspray and Splenda. Even her bones are French manicured. And <laughs> so you go on to say, you can spot her power walking to any one of the 10,000 frozen yogurt franchises they have there. The only difference between every woman on Long Island and Teresa Caputo is this. Teresa Caputo can talk to dead people. Well, you had me at hairspray and Splenda. Let's just... <laughs> I haven't I haven't thought of that piece in a really long time and that I you know I was just laughing so it's it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it it'll do. Yeah, it'll do. So tell me, do you remember what happened to you when you wrote that phrase? Like did you laugh out loud? Did you run down the hall and read it to someone? I mean, my hope is you you just thoroughly enjoyed yourself. But you know, that's not necessarily true. We're, we're pretty hard on ourselves. But just for a second, you know, can you remember being delighted by that? I don't remember that specifically, but I can tell you that I'm, I often delight myself while writing. <laughs> um, I really have, I have so much fun with it. And I, I am so in love with language and words. I've got a notebook of just 
I, I feel like it's a word collection, just things I pick up. But my little mm-hmm. sort of tip to that, and I think it goes back to surprise. I often will tell my writing students when they're making a list or a litany of any kind, usually that's three things, but to have one of the things be surprising. So, you know, Hairspray and Splenda don't necessarily go together. If I had said she was made up of (laughs) hairspray and French manicures and Prada bags, it's not that exciting. Mm -hmm. But uh, so that's often just like a little trick that I lean on that that I think surprise delights people. So that will often be my case, maybe to put something tangible in an intangible list or or the other way around uh, to just, you know. Yeah. Hijack that yeah, that surprise quality. That surprise quality is wonderful. And keeping that surprise quality firmly in mind, I am a huge believer in poetry being the very best training ground for all writers, no matter the genre. When reading it, the appreciation of the individual word is is so much more possible, you know, than when we've got paragraphs out there rolled out before us like lawns, you know. And <laughs> so we tend to just slow down and look. Um, but when writing it, the, the demand to go word by word is simply the best training in the world. But, you know, that's me. So what is your feeling on the training ground of poetry? You write nonfiction and poetry. What do you bring from the poetic training to the nonfiction? I've been thinking about this recently in terms of somebody asked me, a former Poems That Don't Suck student, that's the class I teach, uh, asked me if I would consider (laughs) teaching a, a course in memoir. And I don't feel equipped to do that because it's really something I've just started teaching myself in the last two years and something I'm very Mm -hmm. much, you know, avidly and eagerly learning. I took two of your Memoirama classes, actually, which is so cool that then when you emailed me to be on the podcast, I was super psyched. Oh, lovely. (laughs) What I've actually been doing is studying fiction and... Mm -hmm because that's what what I don't know how to do or have no training on. So plot and character development and setting and all of those juicy, wonderful landmines of knowledge and potential. And the poetry part is just sort of natural to me. But I felt like if I could nail down the elements of fiction and then just bring my natural inclination of metaphor and words and simile and imagery that I could kind of get to nonfiction because poetry is it it's very rare I think nowadays to write fictional poetry so that core that you need to get to in nonfiction of vulnerability and self-exploration I've already gone there and I felt like Mm -hmm. if I learned fiction I could get closer into memoir I don't know if that's the question you asked me now that's a, but that's a wonderful one. It, it 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 talks about the training ground, and you and now you're telling us that you're training for memoir by reading fiction, and you train all the time by writing poetry, and I think people don't understand this necessarily. I certainly meet as many people who think that writing kind of falls from the gods and into your head and comes out your fingers. Uh, for me, it's practically tying myself into the chair, drinking as, as just as much caffeine as I can drink, short of having a serious coronary event, <laughs> eating half a bar of dark chocolate, and then, you know, ripping the phone out of the wall and for some prescribed amount of time. In other words, 
it's hard chair work. It's not, to me, it's not woo-woo at all. There is a process of annotation that's mystical and fascinating from which we draw what we know, what we've heard, what we've tasted, what we've, you know, read. But it's still a hard chair activity. So I love the fact that you're reading fiction to train yourself. You've done a lot to be in this world, in this life. I read about your early life when you were touring the U.S. and Canada for 100 days, doing readings and signing books. I mean, that's a handmade life. It's a do-it-yourself, however you want to put it. I wonder what else you might be able to share with the writers listening here about that toolbox. You know, now we've talked about language, we've talked about poetry, we've talked about reading fiction, but what other internal and external, maybe, tools might you put in someone's toolbox if you could? Hmm. I love that question. I think the best writers are the best noticers. And that's Mm. sort of why I love being in community with other writers because of the different ways somebody might point my head to look at something that I might not have looked at. And I'd say the Mm -hmm. best sort of thing you can do when you're not actually writing is to notice more, to look up more, look around more, uh, keep, you know, if somebody says a phrase or Uh, a word or you see something and it just sort of prickles in you uh, to trust that. I've had the word wet nurse written down um, in my notebook for so long because (laughs) it is such a, it's just uh, beautiful and sort of grotesque and I, I don't know, Victorian era in a way to me. And I've had that word written down for a long time. I still feel like it has its little burrs in me and I know that I will use it one day and come back to it. I can't wait. Uh, so yeah, noticing and, and trusting the impulses of, of what you love, because often you can, those are, or even what repels you, because I think those things will often make the best art. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I was going to say, I, I, years ago, I, somebody told me that you write from the best place when you write from counterphobia. And I learned that, in my experience, I, I, did, I wrote a book about forensic science, and, and um, I'm so squeamish that I have to be lying down when I get a blood test, but I went to autopsies, and it produced some of my best writing, because I was completely terrified, terrified on a level that, you know, I couldn't really function, um, couldn't process it fast enough, so it allowed for some writing that was different. So I think there's yeah, these these skills, uh, these these tools we have sometimes, you know, curiosity and and counterphobia and and the, the writing down the word wet nurse, being able, willing, and able to write these words down and then, you know, worry them like a worry bead and work with them. I wonder, which makes me think about your poem. A student asks me how to make it as a writer, and I remind myself, you capture this idea of what success is for everyone who writes. So how do you define for you? What is or what will be success? For me, I think the completion of something, even if it sucks, is such a success (laughs) to stay with it, probably because that can often be hard for me. So that's why it feels like a success to me. But to carry it through to the end, I mean, I'll finish books that I am not really enjoying as I'm reading them, just to even know, okay, why didn't I like this? Okay, so I don't wanna do that in my future writing. I believe 
finishing something to the end is sort of the greatest scaffolding for learning more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I agree with that. Just getting to it, getting to the end of it. Absolutely. Positively. I've noticed in listening back to some of my podcasts that I've been doing, I keep asking the same question whenever I have a memoir writer here. So I'd really like to ask you this. And I think what I'm asking about is strategies. What are we doing when we ask a writer to go back into a traumatic experience? Are we asking them to re-inhabit the piece, the the past, reanimate it, survive it all over again? What's your strategy when you go back to a place of trauma to write? It's been such an interesting process because it's the first time that I've written, as I can remember, at least from that age. So I've been writing first person present tense. So really having to inhabit who I was then. And as I said earlier, that result has felt like I have that person with me. And of course, we're, you know, we contain all the ages we've ever been, but even more so, I feel her and how she would see the world because I'm in in a steady practice and ritual of of writing from that age. And for mm-hmm. me, the important part is that I'm there with her as, you know, a 33-year-old writer walking my 11, 12-year-old self through that experience. And even though I am writing, you know, in first person, of course, in present tense, I'm I'm bringing in the wisdom that I have now to sort of collect and and take care of her in that process. So I think allowing oh. for yourself to be every age you've ever been as you write can can not just go into a trauma place, but sort of a caretaking place at the same time. I didn't know when I was 11 or 12 that fat camp was a fucked up place. And, you know, of mm-hmm. course, it's more complex than that because it was also mm-hmm. the place that I felt safe and place where I felt like I could be a child in in other ways. But I know I have this other knowledge now. And so when I write from that age, I can sort of, it's not really shield, but it's just like a little sheen or something over, over that past experience of, well, you've made it, you survived, you're writing that now. How did we get from there to here? Mm. Hmm. That's so lovely. It, it, it chokes me up, actually, the idea of of bringing her with you. And it, and it makes me think of, uh, to stick with this subject of trauma for a moment, it makes me think of your poem, Pulse, written after the murders at the Pulse Dance Club in, in Orlando in um, 2016. I've, I've seen you do it as a spoken word piece, and I've read it in your collection, Drive Here and Devastate Me. And you do in this poem what we do as artists. You react to something. In in journalism, we call it the news peg, the provocation for the piece. But you react to this terrible murder, this mass murder at the disco. And then you go to your very most, I guess, stubborn of your own beliefs, asking how anyone would want you to die for being as in love as you are with your partner. And when you just said that, what you said about pulling in your 11-year-old has your 33-year-old, you pulled in your partner into this poem in a way that makes us feel, even though you're saying, how could anyone want us to die for this kind of love, you fold this theme of such love into this arena of hate that I found myself 
more fully informed about both. So just tell me a little bit. I want people to go read the poem. I'll put the link in. Tell me a little bit about bringing the one topic into that news-provoking experience of writing Pulse. I always uh, tell people that I am not the news. Like, I'm not here to inform people in terms of the details and the statistics or everything that happens uh, in the world. And I think sometimes if you have uh, an online platform uh, in this day and age and you're in any way a political artist, sometimes Mm -hmm. folks expect you to be the news and comment on everything and have an opinion on everything and make sure you've covered it all. And that is just not going to be me. A newscaster will just do that far better than I will. But as a poet, I have an obligation to translate to the heart. And so Hmm. I think one of the best entry points into talking about something, you know, that's politicized, which is so ridiculous to think about love being politicized, but it is, is the entry point of, you know, of course, the personal is political, as they say, but even more so love and the people you love around you, because that is, I mean, hopefully (laughs) universal. And I don't trust necessarily the news and statistics and details to change somebody's mind or heart as much as the personal human stories. I think it, I mean, not to quote Mm. Joseph Stalin, but to quote Joseph Stalin, (laughs) I think he said like a million deaths (laughs) is a statistic and one is a tragedy. And that, Mm -hmm. uh, that has resonated with me in terms of just the power of of storytelling. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you are a very powerful storyteller. And I'm, as we wrap this up, I, I, I really, and I, I would actually just prefer to just keep talking to you for the rest of the day, which would be just fine with me. But, you know, I, I know you've do. got things to do. You've got writing to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, uh, you know, just a, a, a full-time life as a writer. That's all. You're writing a memoir. So we're fascinated and waiting by the bookshop door me and a million other people. Can you tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about how that's going and how these skills are informing a long form piece? I think this is your first long form piece. So just a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of an update on how that's going, please. I think that the idea of palimpsest is one that I want to bring up when talking about what this process has been for me. Because my first draft of this Mm -hmm. memoir was a young adult novel in verse. I read The Poet X by Elizabeth Acevedo, and I felt like I could tell the story by this, you know, 11, 12-year-old's poems and stories through Fat Camp in poetry, and it felt achievable. And as I kept going with that, I really started to long for that adult wisdom that I could bring into the work and not just have to stay sort of 11 or 12, which it felt like it needed to do uh, to remain in that form. And so then I started Mm -hmm. writing out in prose and it was like taking my bra off. (laughs) It felt so good. (laughs) (laughs) And... (laughs) 
Yeah. The, I wrote, you know, probably 60 or 70,000 words of prose, um, writing sort of in a reflective nature of like, looking back, I remember. And while there were good sentences and good ideas, as I read the whole thing back to myself, I got a little bit bored. And then I started teaching mm. myself, okay, how can I make this feel as propulsive as fiction? How can this become, you know, sort of a page turner? And then I sought out mentors and, and books and to teach me in that direction. So I'm mm -hmm. on my fourth draft of it now. I just did NaNoWriMo. So I wrote 50,000 words toward it in the month of November. And I am overwhelmed by what a cumbersome project it is to write a long form book. I have no idea how people finish it, but I'm excited for when I finish it and I can tell you how I did it. <laughs> But I love it. I'm, I'm having more fun than I ever have as a writer. That's wonderful. And you deserve it. And as I said, we are literally waiting by the bookshop door. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm very much in your debt. I learned a lot and I deeply appreciate it. Thank you very much, Megan. Marian, this was the highlight of my everything. So thank you for having me, really. Uh. The writer is Megan Fally. She can be reached at meganfally.com, where you can watch her performances as a spoken word poet, read her essays, and read more on who she is and what she does. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, where I teach online classes in how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 